Welcome to the Uncomfortable Conversations podcast, the untold stories of the 3HO Kundalini Yoga community. I'm your host, Guru Nishan. And as always, I want to thank you for listening and thank you for your support. If you haven't already, please rate, review, and subscribe to your favorite podcast platform. Uh, it really does help our ratings on whatever platform you're listening to. Please also share these stories with a friend. There is so much power and healing in our listening. As always, at the beginning of every episode, I like to read the intentions for why I started this podcast. Number one, to break the veil of silence that is long permeated and continues to strangle the 3HO Kundalini Yoga community in the name of neutrality. Number two, to help validate and help clarify the complex feelings of those who have joined this lifestyle, were born and raised into it, and or who have practiced or taught Kundalini Yoga. Number three, to encourage active listening to uncomfortable conversations from this community as a revolutionary act of self and collective healing. Number four, to let survivors know that we see them, we believe them, we love them, and we will fight for their truth to be addressed. Number five, to let teachers who are denying gaslighting or spiritually bypassing know that what they are doing is willfully ignorant and re-traumatizing to victims. Number six, to illuminate the inherent racism, homophobia, cultural appropriation, and exploitation that perpetuates the teachings, 3HO lifestyle, and the overall community ethos. Number seven, to stop the perpetuation of gaslighting and victim shaming by naming it for what it is. Number eight, to dismantle internalized shame, guilt, toxic positivity, and light washing mentality. Number nine, to honor all of the parts of ourselves that have been forgotten or silenced. Number 10, to honor each and every body that has come through this community, both named and unnamed. And number 11, to encourage people to do their own research, to process their own emotions, to get somatic therapy and cult-specific therapy, as well as other support as needed, to draw your own conclusions, and to be critical thinkers rather than to just blindly follow anyone. Please remember that your story matters. Please share it when you're ready. We're here to listen and to support you. I wanna to welcome today's guest. Her name is Mel Hoffman. And at the age of 16, Melanie Calhoun was her name. She started studying Kundalini yoga in 1970 in Berkeley, California at the age of 15. The local area ashram at the time was known as Banana Ananda Ashram in San Rafael, California. She moved into the ashram in the fall of 1971 at the age of 16 years old. 
Shortly thereafter, the name of the ashram was changed to Hargobin Sadan. Baba Bert, later named Sat Santoksing, was the head of the ashram. She lived in the ashram until June of 1972, when her roommate Jeannie, who later became known as Guru Teretkar, also currently known as Jeevan Jyotikar, was arranged to be married to Robert Zwag, who's currently known as Guru Teret Singh. The abrupt arranged marriages, the name changes, and the overall shift in the, quote, lifestyle led Mel to pursue her own path soon after. She was married to Steph Stephen Hoffman and had a daughter who is currently 32 years old. He had cerebral palsy and is featured with their daughter, Emily, in the documentary Crip Camp. He passed away in 2017. She's had a longtime relationship to Kundalini energy, healing, and her own CPTSD recovery. Today, Mel is happily married to Jane Roseman for 25 years. She's a professional photographer, fine artist, and energy healer. And you can learn more about her at melhoffman.com. See the show notes for the correct spelling. I want to welcome you, Mel. Please uh, unmute yourself and join us. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you um, welcoming me here. Thank you. I appreciate you reaching out and lending your voice to this conversation. Um, in our brief exchanges and obviously in your bio, you're giving us a snapshot into the early 1970s um, movement of, from hippie into the solidification of Sikh Dharma of the Western hemisphere. And um, I thank you so much for reaching out. And I just went on to ask you, why do you feel it's important to share your story on the podcast? Well, for many years, I just uh, held the story inside and um, didn't find really many people that I could talk to about it. Um, and most of the people that I knew were either still in 3HO or um, they had left and gone their own way. And occasionally I would reconnect with somebody, but um, there wasn't anyone really like me who felt so... Um, like I, I, I really didn't feel like I belonged in that structure from the very beginning. Um, my primary interest in moving into the ashram and in practicing the yoga was to become liberated, to become enlightened, because honestly, my childhood had been so challenging and difficult um, that, and I already had this idea that if I could achieve the state, then I wouldn't have to come back here. Um, so at 16, I was already thinking about, I don't want to come back here um, to this earth ever again. Um, and that's kind of strange, honestly, for a 16 year old. Um, so I felt kind of out of sync with everybody, not just in the ashram, but also in my peer group. Um, I was mostly interacting with adults. Um, and some of the adults in my environment were not um, treating me um, as I should have been treated. I mean, including my parents. My parents were pretty absent. So um, for me, at least, moving into the ashram was like an opportunity to be celibate after being repeatedly sexually abused by many different people, including a member of my own family. Um, and so I was actually trying to create safety um, and then um, discovered that it really wasn't, you know, it wasn't a safe place. And 
whatever I thought enlightenment was, um, was not was what was happening to me. It was like, it's oh not God. there. No, it, it was not there. I mean, I had some pretty, uh, I don't know how you would define them, but some pretty uh, extreme experiences from doing you mean once, once you joined the, once you joined the ashram, you mean like once you started practicing? Yeah, it okay. was like, okay, yeah. Right. So let me, let me pause you and just say what I'm hearing you say is that you're 15 and you start practicing Kundalini yoga in Berkeley, but you've come from a very tumultuous life. You've already experienced plenty of sexual abuse, some from within your own family, which I want to just pause and just say, I'm so sorry. And I see you there. You are young, you're 15. And what I'm hearing also is probably this old soul, right? This kind of rhetoric around like, huh, I'm, you're relating more to older adults. You've been sexualized young, which we know as child survivors of abuse, it's adultification that happens. Now you're this independent 15 year old, 16, and then move into the ashram as this kind of independent person thinking it's an enlightened environment. And you're saying very soon after you realize this isn't exactly a safe space for me. No, <laughs> no, I mean, not at all. And of course, as a teenager, well, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, tell us least, like, tell us what happened. Yeah. You start taking Kundalini yoga classes. Tell us right. about some of those first classes. Who were your teachers? Like, tell I, us what got you in and what got you out. Well, there were um, a couple of male teachers that I remember, I mean, remember Paul Ehrlich, which um, he was actually one of the people who founded the ashram um, in San Rafael, mm. and named it Banana Ananda. Um, and then, you know, other people came in later. Um, another one was a man named Cliff, Cliff Lamoureux, and I know he did change his name, and I actually met up with him not that long ago. Um, so he, he stuck with that. Um, so um, that teacher, Cliff you said Cliff LaRoe. So he converted and changed his name and ended up staying in 3HO for quite a while, it sounds like. He did, but eventually he left. Um, okay. And I think for him, it was more of a, a a business thing, like a financial thing. Like it, he wasn't able to uh, grow his business within 3HO, that he really needed to be free of it in order to be uh, he's like in a construction business. Um, so anyway, I, I know that he still has the name and he lives not that far away from here. And we, we met up one time. Um, and then as far as I know, Paul had passed away quite, quite a while ago. So I didn't reconnect with him. And then there were other people once I moved into the ashram, like um, Larry and Catherine Shaw. Um, I'm pretty sure that they left. Um, and Larry became um, the director of this place in San Francisco called the Exploratorium. It's like mm. a science museum. So he was a really interesting person. I mean, there were some interesting people who lived there. And um, so, but, you know, I was a teenager and I was surrounded by all these adults. There were a few kids there, a few people had children. Um, there was one other teenager there, but at this point, I don't even remember his name. Um, so I was pretty much, you know, pretty much on my own and my parents weren't involved at all. Like um, basically my mother was kind of freaking out because my dad had left her suddenly um, a few years before and she wasn't really able to parent very well. So I just kind of told her that I was gonna move into the ashram, but she didn't 
have any objections or anything. Um, so it was it was a challenging time, honestly, in many, many ways. Um, and then um, after, well, I, I, I should probably get a little bit more involved in what happened when I was actually there. Please do. Pretty crazy. Um, but basically, I was extremely committed to the practices. I got up every morning at 3.30. Um, my roommate, Jeannie, um, would go around the ashram. And we had this, uh, actually lived in this mansion with like 15 bedrooms. So um, most of us were like paired up with somebody else. So there were probably maybe 30 people there. Um, she would go around with the zither at 3.30 in the morning and wake everybody up. Um, and then um, I think our sadhana probably started around 4 a.m. So I would actually sometimes even go for a swim because we had a pool there or go for a run before the sadhana. And then I would do the yoga practice. And then we did really long stretches of Ekramkar Sadhana Sri Waguru every morning. I think it was like at least an hour, you know, maybe an hour and a half. And at age 16, the fact that I was able to do that is just kind of astounding to me. Um, I mean, if somebody asked me to do that now, I wouldn't do it. Um, plus the effect that it had on me was so um, kind of mind boggling between the extreme diet, um, because Yogi Bhajan would often put us on different kinds of like, um, I'm sure you know those, mono diets like you just eat watermelon or just eat things that were green or um oh my god I mean I can remember like drinking so much water that it would make us throw up and somehow that was supposed to be purifying or something like that but for me um I actually didn't have a menstrual cycle for the entire time I lived there for nine months so, you know, when I'm looking back on it, I think, well, I was probably suffering from malnutrition. Mm. Um, and of course, the, the vegetarian diet was sort of a central thing. And I found out later in life that um, I actually tend to have very low cholesterol levels. Um, and without enough cholesterol, you can actually really mess up your hormones. Um, and so I, you know, I, I needed to ultimately change my diet, but um, wow. okay. So wow. what was happening to me was that I would get into these states after doing the practices that would, where we would lay down in corpse pose. Um, and all of a sudden this very high, fine vibration of energy would move through me from my feet up to the top of my head. And then I would become um, paralyzed and unable to speak. And then I would go, I would go out of my body. Um, and when I went out of my body, I started hearing um, voices, but it wasn't like friendly voices. <laughs> they were like, I don't know, you know, I don't even know what it was. You know, maybe maybe the ashram was haunted. I'm not really sure, but they were they were like screaming at me. Um, and sometimes I would actually feel like I was being pinned to the floor by these um, beings who, as far as I knew, were somehow trying to destroy me. Um, it was very, very scary. And um, 
I was a very uh, kind of introverted, shy, quiet um, person who didn't wasn't really taught that I could set any boundaries or any limits or or fight back or any of those things. Um, so I really didn't tell anybody. I didn't tell anybody what was going on. Um, I was just like suffering in silence, basically. Um, and nobody was really asking me or noticing. Um, I remember this, this really stands out to me. There was a woman named Donna, and I don't know if she stayed with 3HO or not, but she was our, like our secretary and she was in this office space and she would take care of all the phone calls and paperwork and all those kind of things. But anyway, half the time Donna was just sitting in her office sobbing. Um, and at that age, I was like, not in touch enough with my feelings to, um, to express them very much. So I was like wondering, you know, what's going on with her? Like, why, why is she crying all the time? Um, and I felt really bad for her, but I never, you know, really asked her, like, what's going on here? Um, so anyway, the, these bizarre, you know, voices and all that were happening. And then um, there was also a morning, I remember being in my bed and I was laying down and all of a sudden I was just like, like falling into this dark black hole. Mm. which um, I've identified as the void. And I know some people who talk about near-death experiences talking talk about falling into this void or being in this blackness or whatever. Um, so I had that experience, but no really way to to frame it. <laughs> you know, what, what what's happening with me? Uh, you know, is this part of the enlightenment process or am I going crazy? Um, and then the other really significant experience that I had along those lines from doing the practices was actually a really incredible encounter with um, a very large um, group of angels um, mm. showed up one morning, um, was in the meditation room and we did our practices and um, they were just singing and laughing and playing these beautiful harps. And, and what was interesting, I guess, looking back on it now is that I didn't really have a sense of being in relationship with them, but more that they were just there. Um, like they were having a good time, but that didn't mean that I was having a good time. I I was just like, oh my God, what's happening? And I'm hearing this music, but you know, there's nothing playing on the, whatever there was techno technologically wise back then. Um, so that was a significant experience for me. And later on, I thought, well, um, I wonder why they didn't show up for me other times, like when I was having these different traumas that I had along the road later on. Um, but anyway, it was kind of one of those mystical experiences that was more on the positive side of the fence. Um, but, you know, as I said, there wasn't really anybody that I was talking to. About what mm -hmm. um, yeah. And one thing that really stood out was that even though you're living in such close quarters, you aren't in touch with each other's emotional experience. You're just kind of noticing and then nobody's bringing up. There's nobody for you to share. Nobody's asking you how what's going on for you, even though everybody's commingled in terms of time and space. Right. 
yeah, there was no psychological depth at all anywhere. Mm -hmm. I mean, nobody was talking about their inner process or what they were feeling or what was going on. I mean, there were crazy things happening. Like I remember this guy, Steve, who was a friend that I would talk to sometimes. Um, I kind of bonded with him. He um, he got scabies and then um, like we had to like wash down the entire place. Um, and it, it was a really intense process, <laughs> you know, to keep the scabies from invading the entire place. Um, is stuff like that would happen that was just sort of crazy. And then also there were like locks on the refrigerators. Um, and um, I guess part of the way that, well, I, I mean, it still happens at times. Part of the way that I would comfort myself was with food. And it's like, well, I can't even get into the refrigerator, you know. Um, now, if I'm correct, is this um, the refrigerators that are the food that's like for the community meal? Um, right. So like there might be like people who live in the, at least this is what I know from my ashram experience. So I'm, I'm double checking. There are personal ashrams that you might have where you can keep your personal items, but then there's collective food that is used for like ashram meals that people collectively make for the ashram. And I remember there being locks on the big fridges that were for the community meals. And then there were personal meals that people that lived in the ashram could stick their food into. Yeah, I don't don't remember having any personal space at all to put anything like that. <laughs> but I do you didn't have a you didn't have a mini fridge in your room with your roommate. No, I didn't have anything, honestly. <laughs> um, yeah. So, and but there was this big room that had these like large bags of stuff. Like um, there was, you know, flour and beans and rice and. Um, I remember there was this large bag of sesame meal and I was like starving sometimes. I was so hungry that I would like go in there with a spoon and you know, eat it off the bag. Um, I mean, it's really crazy when I think about it, but I was probably, you know, just looking anywhere I could find some sort of nutrition that I wasn't, you know, wasn't getting. Um, and tell us how it was set up. Like when you moved into the ashram, did you have to pay to live there? Did you have to work to live there? Did you have to contribute um, uh, in terms of food or, or, or rent or how, how did it set up back then? Was it just kind of a hippie commune? It was a, definitely a hippie commune, but there was a set rate per month for both room and board. And I actually remember what it was. It was $125, which... Hmm. By today's standards, like that, you go to the grocery store and you spend that much money or more. <laughs> so um, my mother actually gave me the part of the child support that she got from my father, which was $125. And then I gave it to them. So I didn't have any money. No, no right. money. No food. Nothing. Mm. I mean, no, no resources to get anything of my own. And did the ashram cook a meal together? Was there food, free food provided? That was a part of it. They just kept locks on it so people couldn't go ravage it on their own. Right. Yeah. And I was a big part of all of that because I actually set it up with Berkeley High, which was where I still went, even though it was across the bay, to go to school one day a week. Um, and then I would do all the rest of my work on independent study. So I was basically available as like a full-time cook and cleaner 
Um, so I did a lot of cooking and cleaning when I was there. You were like, save a devotee, it sounds like. Yeah, I really was. And and the woman who worked in the office, Donna, she kept a chart for all of us. She was called the dance master. Um, and there would be a whole, you know, schedule. But I took on a lot of extra responsibility just because it gave me something to do, partly. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, something to focus on, something to put your time and attention into. But it sounds like you were very undernourished and still not getting your needs met. And you were having these kind of crazy experiences and nowhere to share or get support. Right, exactly. Mm -hmm. uh, and then in terms of Yogi Bhajan, he would come um, to visit our ashram um, and he would come with Premka. Um, so I met her back then. Um, wow. Yeah. And they would stay in the room where at the time it was um, it was Bert and Robin um, and their daughter. And I can't remember their daughter's name at this point. Um, so they would move out of their room and he would stay there. And initially, I remember, I think the first time he came, he came with his family, he came with his wife and his teenagers. Um, and then I don't remember that ever happening again. Um, all the times that he would visit after that, he would come with Premka. Um, and as far as I know, they both stayed in that room, but I, I'm not really sure. Um, that was just my perception. Um, and then while he was there, he would kind of um, hold court, like um, where people could come in individually and consult with him. Um, and I remember going to him one time, like when I, I had this ringing in my ears and I, I didn't know what to do about it. So I sat down and he told me that um, that I should take quinine. But <laughs> like, really, honestly, and that was the other thing. I had no I had no medical care while I was there. Um, I mean, things would happen and I would just kind of deal with it by going and consulting with Yogi Bhajan, you know, or, or whoever, um, or, or I would just wouldn't say anything. Like I remember spraining my ankle one day with my friend Earlene, and I don't know if she stuck around, but we were, we were just like dancing to some, you know, kind of music and uh, I sprained my ankle and I just, I just let it heal on its own. I didn't even go to the doctor. Wow. Yeah. And I still have, um, it's not painful, but I have a strange cracking sound in the left ankle. Wow. Um, yeah. So Baba Bert became Satoksing and Mary was married to Robin. That was his first right. wife. And then later on, as he joined more and more that I think he ended up marrying somebody else. Um, but you're saying that his original wife was Robin and they had a daughter when he was running that ashram right? at that time. Right. And, so, and I know that when Yogi Bhajan would come in with, with, uh, with Premka or with any of the secretaries, he generally always got the nicest room or the nicest house in whatever area he was coming to visit so that he could spread out with his, his ladies and hold court. As you said, I thought that was really good language. Yeah. Um, it was, it just happened to be the room right next to mine, which is interesting. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, Jeannie and I were at the very end of the hall in a sunroom, basically, that had been converted into our bedroom. Mm. Um, and it, so he kind of had e easy access to me in a way, 
although I didn't really feel like personally connected to him or anything. I mean, I felt kind of like he didn't even know that I existed really. But um, I do remember one time I was with this friend of mine, Arlene, who was an adult like everybody else. Um, and we- <laughs> You're hanging out with a bunch of adults as you're normal. Right. Yeah, it was just like kind of weird, but normal. And nobody ever said anything like, are you okay? I mean, where are your parents? Um, are, you know, whatever. It's like, nobody ever said that to me ever. Um, I would think that if anything, you probably got things more like, oh, you're such an old soul. Oh, you're so mature for your age. Oh, that kind of more like projecting into you how, which I feel as children, we got so much of, of like what it meant to grow up fast and to be able to kind of have a, be a wise one for your years, even the way you navigated your education. There's a parallel because I did mine at 15, 16 and similarly. So that kind of like reverence for like, oh, you're so mature for your age. And so they start to speak to you as if you're adults rather than remembering you're 15 or 16. And you need care that obviously your environment at home didn't provide. Right. Exactly. Yeah, that that's absolutely true. I mean, people would think that I was older than I was or um, I remember one guy because I I was very good at sewing and I, I I like sewed this garment for somebody in a very short period of time. And he said to me, Oh, you'd make a really good wife. And it's like, that was kind of the last thing that I wanted to hear. I was that. like, that was not a compliment, sir. No, not at all. And I already knew that I was pretty much um, bi. I mean, you know, I've been with men and I've been with women and I hadn't really decided except for that. I didn't really want to be rejected, so it seemed safer to be with men. Anyway, um, but what what happened with me and Arlene was we ended up somehow um, with Billy Bashan, and he was he was alone at the time, and he'd just taken a shower. Um, he had his hair down, um, and he was only wearing his underwear, um, like those little you know tidy whiteas. Yeah. Oh no, you mean actually not the Indian short ones, but the actual like men whitey tighties? I think so. I really, I mean, maybe I'm wrong, but that's what I remember. You know? And, you know, so here we are in his room with him after he's taken the shower um, in his underwear. Um, and I remember him like, like bringing us both kind of together with his big arms and sort of smashing us together and telling us, you know, to keep up or something like that. But anyway, it was just wildly inappropriate. You know, I mean, here I was 16 years old, that shouldn't have been happening, honestly. Um, I mean, obviously, I skipped out on some of the things that happened to other people, which are just horrific. Um, but um, it, it just, it just, it wasn't right. It just was, wasn't right at all. Um, and then also he was very involved with um, like doing these um, inspections where he would take a tour of the ashram and, um, you know, look under the toilet and stuff and see if we cleaned it properly. And he would say things like, um, that God wouldn't want to come into the ashram because it was it wasn't clean enough mm. and that kind of thing and i really kind of took that to heart like oh my god you know if i don't um 
make sure that everything's clean, then somehow I'm not going to be bestowed with this blessing that I was seeking. So. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Um, during the time at the ashram, your roommate is Jeannie. And so do you naturally become closer because you're living together or not necessarily? Not really. No, I, I rarely remember talking to her about much of anything. Mm -hmm. yeah. She seemed, well, she was, she was more involved in other things. And she was very connected to, to Yogi Bhajan. Um, and it was it was strange to me. I didn't really understand why people looked up to him in the way that they did. Um, and I definitely got that from her that she really looked up to him. And I do know from some other people who were uh, like friends of mine, um, one who was with his wife now in Española, that um, there were certain things about him that people looked up to, like that he could that he could see auras or he could, you know, look into the future or, you know, that he had these abilities or whatever. Um, and I just thought, wow, that's really strange. I mean, I can remember um, taking the, the white Chantra class with, with Yogi Bhajan as a teacher. It was um, in Sausalito, Sausalito, California, also over there in Marin County. Um, and you know, here I was doing these, bizarre exercises where we had to hold these poses for however long it was I mean it seemed like forever um and in the process of doing that I started seeing all sorts of auras around people and I started seeing into their past lives you know and all kinds of stuff and I thought well that's interesting that he can um do those things and I'm having those experiences too but nobody's talking about what's going on with me you know it was just weird it's like He's somehow this special person and he has the same abilities that I have. It was just strange. Um, I appreciate the fact that you're 16 years old having this awareness. <laughs> I really did have the awareness. I had the awareness all along. And, and for years, I just, I would dream about like this particular friend, uh, you know, leaving 3HO. And showing up up at my door without his turban on, and of course that never happened. Um, but I just thought, are they so deluded that they can't see? I I just couldn't I couldn't understand it. And then also just the whole, all the garb and everything, which um, doesn't really. Um, you know, it just doesn't resonate with the rest of the world. Um, you mean the whole, uh, like the whitening of everything. So like where everything went from like, kind of like free, we're coming together and doing practices for enlightenment to being more of an organized religion, needing to wear a particular uniform, like a turban and white, um, the name changing from Baba Bert. My dad was Baba Lee. Everybody had Baba something to their name. And it went from that to being these, official names from yogi bhajan like do you mean that kind of watching people go through that and watching this kind of blind reverence happening around you yeah i do i just it just seemed like there was the separating themselves from the rest of society and not really being a part of the world 
Mm. Like there was some, it's kind of like a lot of religions where um, like we're the chosen ones or, or whatever. And then of course that would um, go over into um, like the whole thing about it's not okay to be gay and, and, and all of that. Um, and actually one of my favorite people at the ashram was a cook. Um, I worked with him all the time and um, I didn't know it then, but I later discovered that he was gay and you know, he left and <laughs> had his life. But, you know, just- yeah. Yeah. Wow. I, I'm, I'm really struck that, you know, you came in and out during this kind of small window where it went from kind of like open ashram free love spaces to this really organized religious spaces and i've heard a couple of people um speak about this particular san rafael area and the banana ananda ashram specifically um because some people really did transition into the gung-ho Sikh Dharma Trecho lifestyle, stayed there, were in high levels of leadership throughout, and are still very much in, in the Dharma, including Jeevan Jyoti, including Guru Tarot Singh, including Satsantok Singh, all in their own ways, with very complex stories, with their own complex family dynamics and children and all the stories. But here you are giving us the snapshot in time of that one to two year span of time where it went from your curiosity to kind of watching people that um, you're living with become more and more serious about a lifestyle that isn't really resonating with you anymore. I wouldn't say that the lifestyle ever resonated with me, ever. Uh, It was Mm. more um, the yoga um, and the potential for enlightenment that was interesting to me and the other thing I can say about that is just that there were a lot of other people around at the time um like Ramdas was around at the time um I can you're remember. talking about the big time teacher Ramdas right yeah okay. I'm talking about the big time. I, I mean I know that there's there's Ramdas's within 3HO as well but I was just clarifying for people Ramdas, that about the Ramdas right? <laughs> not not Guru Ramdas in our Kundalini lineage but Ramdas yeah. the teacher that was also kind of creating his own following at the time right right so I like went to hear him speak at Berkeley High um and then there was also Mershid Mershid uh I can't say that word Samuel Lewis so he mm. was connected with the Sufis and um there was actually a Sufi group that used to come into the ashram and teach Sufi dancing. Um, so along with the like the solstice and all that stuff, there was also um, Sufi camp. So I can remember going to Sufi camp. Um, and uh, there was a psychic who used to come. Her name was Betty Bethard. She's not around anymore. But um, Yogi Bhajan at the time was kind of connecting with all these different people. And over time, um I don't think he did that as much um but these different people would come in and like give a lecture or do a Sufi dance or whatever um and then um there was this guy uh Dr. Mishra who would come in and oh my god I mean for me at age 16 sitting and listening to him was like torture I mean it was just all this I don't even I don't even remember what he talked about, but it was just uh, like I was going to fall over and, and, you know, fall asleep kind of talk (laughs) lecture. (laughs) 
Yeah, and that's it's sometimes that would happen in the morning too with the sadhana. I was just so exhausted that you know my head would just fall on the floor. Mm. It's so interesting as you're describing. You're talking about in those days. YB, like you're saying, would bring in guest teachers, say to solstices or whatever. And you're kind of cr- trying to create this. It sounds like creating uh, to, to learn from all sorts of mystics, from all different pathways, yada, yada, not this is the right path. This is the way you have to do it. But kind of this open space that eventually was actually more drawing people of many different directions to see which ones would follow him, so to speak. Right. Yeah, I think it was in that transition phase because he came to the United States in 1968 um, and hadn't quite developed that particular package that was being developed while I was there. Um, And so I was really unaware that that was going to happen. And it kind of came out of nowhere. It's like, oh my God, you know, people are wearing white, they're wearing turbans, they're wearing these stainless steel bracelets. I mean, I still, like, I'll go in a gas station and notice the stainless steel bracelet on the person and know that they're Zeke. I mean, it's just something you don't ever forget. Um, Truth. Yeah. So it was just a very, very strange time. And um, I ended up graduating from high school a year early um, and then going directly into a community college um, when I was 17. Um, so it all happened very quickly that I continued to live, um, independently. Um, And what made you decide to leave the ashram and actually move somewhere else? Yeah. I mean, really mainly it was honestly, um, the marriage of my roommate that happened so suddenly, like I, this guy came to the ashram. He was an attorney. Um, Yogi Bhajan basically said, you're going to be married and then they were married um and I thought oh my god if I stay here that's going to happen to me (laughs) I'm only 16 that's not I'm not ready to get married um so you're like let me get the heck out of Dodge yeah I would I would say that was probably the main thing that happened along with people starting to change their names and um to wear to wear white still to this day it's very hard for me to wear white. Um, it's like I have a trauma response to it. So you remember being in the ashram where people were dressing however they were dressing and then they started wearing all white? Or was that from the get-go when you were in there where they, everybody are already wearing all white? It was pretty much right towards the end. So meaning you're living there, everything's one way. And then while you're living there, everything becomes a whole nother way. Everybody has to wear white, wear turbans and kind of look a certain part but that changed while you were living there within that one year from 1971 to 72. Right. Yeah. I mean, I was never asked to do that. Um, I was never given another name. I, I didn't, I wasn't part of that, but that did start to happen when my roommate got married. Um, and they had a very traditional elaborate um, Sikh marriage ceremony. Sikh wedding. Were you there? Was it in San Francisco? Was it there? Yeah. It was. I remember it being out in the street, which seems really strange to me at the time, uh, at this moment in time. But we were on this little kind of secluded cul-de-sac um, in San Rafael. And so your roommate, as you know her, is Jeannie, and then she becomes Guru Tarek Carr, right? Um, well, at the time she was Jivan Jyoti, but um, yeah. Oh, did she choose? Yeah. She chose Jivan Jyoti herself. 
I don't know how that happened. Honestly. So this is, I'm going to just pause and just say, I could be getting this story wrong, but I'm going to say it. And if you want to, if you're a listener and you can correct this story or Jeevan Joe to yourself, if you want to come and correct the story, I'm welcome, welcome you to come correct it. But my understanding is she chose Jeevan Doti. This was the name that resonated her. And then her name got changed to being the same as her husband. So Guru Tarot Singh was named Guru Tarot Singh. And then what Yogi Bhajan was doing to a lot of the people, which goes a lot to what happens in cults when your um, your identity is taken, is he would make the husband and wife the same name. So the only way you could actually tell the part was the car or the Singh. So I think Guru Tarot Singh gets named Guru Tarot Singh, and then she gets named Guru Tarot Car. I think she always loved Jeevan Jyoti. So it sounds like she, from your recollection, she became Jeevan Jyoti, and when, when she was, quote, forced by Yogi Bhajan to change her name to Guru Tarot Kar, she honored, quote, her teacher, kept that name. But when he passed, my understanding is she went back to Jeevan Jyoti because that was always her own personal choice and her own resonance. So uh-huh. that's my limited understanding of that story. Right. And I would say that there are a lot of people who have the same name, but there are some that don't. Um, yeah. And Jeevan Jyoti is a unique one. Like I know my mom, for example, when she chose, she's the one who chose her own name. She found a Shabbat and that Shabbat resonated with her. And that's how she kind of found her own resonance of her name. But when Yogi Bhajan was naming people, my dad's name got changed from Baba Lee to Mede Piyari Singh. And so a lot of couples, and I know this happened to some of the women where their name got changed to the men, men's name. But in my, in my parents' case, my dad's name got changed to the woman's name. And so there ended up being kind of this built-in marriage tension around having to uphold a name that wasn't your own choice, so to speak. And I'll go back to to your story. You stayed Melanie because you weren't interested in taking on a name or being named by Yogi Bhajan or any of those things. It sounds like you always just stayed Mel. Yeah, I did. Um, By the way, I am starting to feel some of that energy moving. (laughs) I don't know. I might jump or something. Anyway. um, Okay. We're going to go ahead and pause for a second. Sure. Okay. So there were, yeah, there were a couple of really bizarre things that happened. Um, One of them is that I went to this small school when I was growing up. It was like a school that was modeled after Summerhill and I went there for six years. So it was basically one of those like quote free schools of the sixties. And it was started by four men who um, all taught in the public schools and they wanted to create this alternative school. So anyway, when I went there, um, we did a lot of camping and on one camping trip, um, there was a parent who was uh, married or parent who had a boyfriend who basically sexually molested me when I was 14. Um, And somehow he ended up moving into the ashram. Um, yeah yeah like the gardener um yeah I know (laughs) I mean I I actually recently was trying to kind of piece this whole thing together because um the woman that he was with I was also involved with her as well which is really bizarre I mean it was like the two of them and their two small children which is I mean the whole thing is just so weird convoluted crazy and it was all involved with this private school that I went to where there was actually a lot of sexual abuse going on between teachers and students and parents and students and all that kind of stuff. But anyway, um, 
yeah, somehow he ended up living in the ashram too. And I don't remember how that all happened. Um, and it was, I think, toward the end of the time that I was there. And that behavior was did not continue when he moved into the ashram. But it was just like my life just felt like no matter where I went, there were these, you know, elements that were coming in um, like that um, mm -hmm. that made me feel not safe. And I guess sort of on the whole, um, because I had a Kundalini awakening basically as a result of doing Kundalini yoga, um, over the years, um, I've sought out help to deal with that process. Um, and there was one person in particular that I worked with for a while, um, who was like a, you know, Kundalini expert, not in Kundalini yoga, but in the, the whole process and what happened. The energy surging, that kind of stuff. Right. You know, the, there's one group that calls, calls it like when lightning strikes, uh, that wasn't what I experienced, but you know, some people have that kind of lightning bolt experience. Um, but anyway, it often leads to things like the dark night of the soul and really just kind of going down into the depths and having to face um, a very intense trauma healing process, which is a lot of what I've gone through. Anyway, I was working with this woman and it was very helpful. And um, even the therapist that I was seeing worked with her a little bit. Um, and then... <laughs> And she knew how I felt about Kundalini Yoga and 3HO and, and the whole thing. She contacted me and she says, you know, I'm actually going to take the Kundalini Yoga training. And I thought, why would you do that? I mean, that's insane, you know. So she went and studied with um, Guru, was it um, Guru Jaga? Was that who it was? The woman oh, in Oh, Lord. The one in Santa Monica? Yeah. The one who passed away, the, the Rama super predator cult person. Exactly. Um, oh God, like what a choice. I know. Yeah. And, and I said, you know, you really don't want to do that. <laughs> I mean, that's a really bad idea. Um, and she explained to me how she has like these abilities, you know, to see energy or whatever. And that when people were doing the yoga, they were having these amazing things happening to them. And so she really wanted to, you know, study it and everything. And at that point, I just thought, I can't work with this person anymore. This is not working for me at all. And then, um, and then wow. this book came out and then it was like, I mean, we even discussed that, the fact that, all these people had been abused and mistreated and all these things that happened that were just horrific and that had totally altered and changed people's lives. And, you know, for me, it was like, this yoga is fucking dangerous. I mean, especially for young people, especially for children. Um, I mean, if you're a child, you should be playing. You shouldn't be chanting Agron Karsatnam Siriwagaru for an hour. two and a half hours yeah you just shouldn't be doing that and that it's just not safe the yoga is not safe I mean maybe it's safe for some people but at least it was not safe for me as a young person and I wasn't getting the support that I needed in order to process the experiences that I was having and so it's taken me basically my whole lifetime mm. that mm. um and so for me it was just reckless 
and dangerous for her to be doing this. Um, so anyway, you know, we had a parting of the ways. But in the meantime, I, I got pretty mad about it several times. Um, and she just kept insisting that it was such a um, incredible technology. Yeah, it is a bit disturbing to hear it like bum bundled into a category of a technology and and um, I even hear people that are from the early your area, the San Rafael area, who didn't quote continue on with the three HO Sikh Dharma path, but still continued to you know to practice and teach the the Kundalini Yoga technology as if so much of what YB brought was a legitimized practice. Um, when really, what I hear your 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 sixteen year old self realizing was that I'm getting fragmented. And this isn't bringing me more to myself. It's actually creating more distortion um, and surges of, of potent energy. Energy is powerful, but electricity can kill somebody, right? This idea that if we don't really understand the potency and we've been delivered information that might not be fully housed in real truthful history, but rather predatory history, what is it that was actually being practiced, right? Um, how did you feel when all this came out in 2020 and the book and, and how did that help you into, there had been so much years and yet it doesn't mean that these experiences are far away for you either. Right. It was honestly, it was a tremendous relief. And then joining the Facebook group where people were being honest about their experiences, um, connecting with Kremka because really, honestly, she didn't really even know who I was. Um, and then we had some interactions with each other. And then the, the other thing was that the whole um, the whole Olive Branch um, investigation and the report, I actually got some money. Um, it wasn't very much. Oh, you but, reported. You reported because of the personal experience of what happened to you young. Right. Um, Good for you. Anyway. Good for you. So I got $1,200, which is like a drop in the bucket when you know, it comes to therapy or whatever. But you mean uh, you got money for therapy and reimbursement or because of Olive Branch report? I'm not really sure. Um, well, there was, there were, they were giving out like $1,200 to survivors basically to help them pay for therapy. Um, oh, okay. So this wasn't because you reported to Olive Branch. This is just because you said that you needed counseling. I did. I did, did report, report to them. Got I, don't, okay. I don't really know how that all worked. I honestly don't remember the entire process. So I but just I want to pause and I want listeners to hear there was no money given from the olive branch. Um, any survivor that had been directly abused YYB, by YB in any capacity were welcome to come forward and share their story anonymously. And so I hear you sharing that you did that in one phase of when that was called to offer. Um, in a different point around that same time, there was... Um, an offering of counseling reimbursement. First, they offer had a counseling offer where we got to be a part of <clears throat> 10 sessions of counseling through their employee program, essentially. So the SSSC extended counseling through their employee program, which allowed us all to get counseling up to $1,200. And then there was a separate program that came soon after that that had to do with counseling reimbursement up to five to $10,000. Any one of those, it sounds like you got to get some cash for some counseling reimbursement. Yeah. As a, as a matter of fact, I just got $1,200 without really providing any documentation whatsoever. Um, Fair enough. 
Yeah, and I don't really remember the person that I interacted with, but it was somebody from 3HL. Got it. But you didn't necessarily do a reparations claim on this last round. That wasn't a part of the process you joined. No, I didn't. I actually did. I I was part of the Facebook group and then then I wasn't um, at some point because I was just getting triggered too much. Um, And so I I wanted to kind of separate myself from that. Not that I wanted to separate myself from certain people or whatever. It's just, it was overwhelming. It's overwhelming. Um, so I've, I've reconnected with the group, but um, in that process, I had some direct communication with Kremka and that was, that was very helpful. So you got to speak directly with Pamela. Yeah. Good on you. Right. It must it's, be. So- yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's okay. We all naturally do it because like in a reference point, that's how you reference someone, but you know, she is Pamela in today's day and age and we will respect that Premka was a, a role and, um, a persona that was put on her. And the more, you know, the more we all heal, the more we really understand what it means to take on cult personas as our own survival mechanisms. Um, but also a persona that wasn't one she chose. It was um, very much, um, you know, painted on the role that she needed to live up to. It's not easy. Right. No, I definitely know her as Pamela. No, and <laughs> it just, I kind of slipped into a old brain group I guess Um, very normal very normal well I know you have some old pictures um, that I think is are awesome because it really gives a snapshot into time Um, before we move into the picture gallery is there any more that you want to make sure that you share about um, your experience or your story or that time or just anything in relation to 3HO Yogi Bhajan whatever Well, I noticed despite the fact that there were certain like rules, like you don't get divorced and um, that kind of thing, that that happened anyway. Um, And the one friend I know who's still in Española basically divorced and also became pretty estranged from his son, which I find sad. Yeah. Uh, That that happens. that in 3HO, you know, like you're either in it or you're not in it. And if you get divorced and the other person isn't in it, in it anymore, then that can break up family too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the amount of stories like that, that's what continues to blow my mind. I, I mean, I had left a long time ago too, and you kind of leave something in its t- frozen time, not realizing that everybody else ages and has entire lives through these worlds that you've left right um so i i feel like that's one of the reasons why that facebook group was so powerful and so healing but then also so triggering simultaneously is because before we knew it we had five thousand people in there and some people were from as far back as the 70s like you who left a couple years in who's still trying to put pieces to the puzzle and as you started this podcast with mel a lot of the people that were in your ashram became entrenched 3HOers. So it's right. not like you had anybody, those relationships still, you know? Um, so again, it's kind of like a blast for the past to end up in that group and overwhelming. Cause it's like, Whoa, people are talking about it always from their own point of view. Cause that's all we can do. And yet not everybody's point of view matches up the storyline of somebody else's experience of the same exact thing. Right. And that actually does spark a couple of memories. One was that Baba Burt, prior to being in the ashram, was like the manager for the Grateful Dead. 
Um, Interesting. Uh, How cool. Yeah. yeah. And then the other thing is that um, toward the end of my time there, uh, Vikram came in, um, the guy who was in the animals. Um, yeah, exactly. So there was sort of a connection also with like the rock and roll world, which was yeah, interesting. <laughs> what a, And what a theme, right? This kind of rock and roll era. And we keep hearing it in all of these stories of 3HO of how the music, right? The music and how this kind of like rock and roll era music, whether it's Grateful Dead or, you know, Led Zeppelin or, um, you know, that era of kind of like revolutionary music got then channeled into this revolutionary spiritual path. Um, and we've heard it from Peter. We've heard it from Guru Ganesha Singh. We've heard it from, you know, hearing Baba Bert. I mean, first of all, I'm just, I'm just, I'm just stuck on that. His name was Baba Bert, like go Satsantoksi. Like, and I know, you know, Jiwan and Snodamkar and, you know, there's a whole family dynamic of people that I love and I'm connected to that, that link to Satsantoksi. Um, so hearing the old memories and how early this is, right. That somebody at this age, and stage get so committed to the path and committed to the teacher that was Yogi Bhajan to them. Same thing hearing Jeevan Jyoti's relationship with Yogi Bhajan and then hearing that this attorney flies in and Yogi Bhajan marries her off. Well, Guru Tarot Singh was Yogi Bhajan's early attorney. He was the chancellor and the attorney that dealt with all that early allegation stuff, folks, like the Time Magazine article in 1977. You know, look at who was signing that attorney stuff for YB during all those 1970 to 1980 years. Guru Tarot Singh. But that, what was surprising to me, I guess, was when Premka's book came out was that that stuff was already out there. I mean, it's it was- It's been, it I was mean, out there. Lawsuits, everything, it was already there. But whenever I would try to talk about it, nobody would look to me. It was like, I was talking about something that didn't exist. So meaning when you talked about it, when like you know with this friend in Española, it's like this stuff has been there for years it's not like this book came out and all of a sudden uh, there's an acknowledgement I mean there's been an acknowledgement all along it's just that people haven't been paying attention willfully choosing not to look at it and I think that's so powerful because I fall in that category, you know, as late as 2016, I had a student bring up, maybe it was a little later, maybe 2018, I had a student uh, pull up the 1985 lawsuit that really breaks down not just what Pamela talked about, but also what um, Kate felt, and not just the rape and the abuse and the biting, but also um, uh, intellectual property. And so this really hit me when I read that lawsuit myself was that realization, what you're talking about, Mel, like this has been in the public domain. Like, how do you train a people to not look at what's in the public domain? You know, and and then we willfully choose not to read it. And people can, to this day, that's still showing up. We willfully choose not to listen to these podcasts. And sometimes it's because we know our trauma healing process and we know it's not good for us right now. But on a different side, it can also just be like, I can't hear that so that I can continue teaching what I teach or believing in the reverence of something magical and special when really, if I read this, I'm going to realize this is a house of cards and I've been blowing it up with my life force. Right. 
And you know, the irony of the whole thing is that Kundalini herself will bring that all to light. I mean, that's you're talking she, about the reverence of the energy itself. The energy itself brings it all to light. It brings the truth. It brings the trauma to the forefront to be dealt with. Honestly, in my view, whether you like it or not, I mean, it's just sort of like part of the process. Yeah. Well said. Yeah. Well said. That's been my experience. The more I run from it, the more the dark truth is going to rear its ugly head for me to witness or not. And I can continue to willfully not pay attention and all the things until life is such a disaster that you have to, you know? Um, but I will say the teachings have been so powerful and the grip that they can hold on us and in, myself included can keep us from seeing things that are in plain sight. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I really have to catch myself sometime. And actually, I was going to mention this before, but I forgot um, that there was just so, all this anti-drug stuff was a very big part of 3HO and um, bringing people in uh, for recovery and all that. But I mean, if you take um, drugs and just throw them out the window, I mean, that can cause problems. You know, I mean, there are benefits like I... I actually started taking insulin and I was diagnosed with type one diabetes when I was 19. Well, what would have happened to me if I hadn't done that? Um, I later in life found out I had hepatitis C and I did antiviral treatment. Um, and then I, you know, because I've dealt with like CPTSD and depression and all of that, um, I finally availed myself of psychedelics for therapy. Um, and that was a big no-no. It's like, you just don't, you don't do that. Um, and as it's turned out, it's really, really helped me. I, I ended up um, seeking um, ketamine therapy. Beautiful. Tremendously helpful. Yeah. Thank you for bringing that up. I think it's such an important point that there's such an emphasis on this is the right pure lifestyle and all that's wrong. And the more entrenched people are like the further back and the more entrenched that this is the right way and the most healthy way and all those things. Um, it doesn't leave room or space for it to explore what our system needs. Right. Right. And whether that's your particular body, maybe your brain chemistry, you know, that there is a time and place for medications. It all doesn't necessarily have to just be through, your breath in the natural way. There can be brain body imbalances that can be corrected by healthy support with medicine, much less other alternative methods of psychedelic, um, uh, what do they call it? Where it's guided treatments, right. ketamine treatments or whatever. I think it's just an important point that we can become so entrenched in the right, in the belief system of this is gonna change humanity. This is the right way. And to me, that was a part of what I knew wasn't right. <laughs> like anything that gets me this um, frantic about thinking it's the right way to do something can't be the only thing, you know, because it induces so much fear if doing the opposite. And that was a part of what I had to explore in order to like get down off my Kundalini yoga high and be like, what's actually happening in my body when I do this practice? Is it fragmenting me? Is it disconnecting me? And that's why I found the stories you were talking about 
as weird as it might sound to some people, when you go through a really intense Kundalini yoga practice, you do two and a half hours, or let's just call it an hour of long cars, which I can really appreciate that meditation. It's one of the quote meditations that sustained me through very challenging. I did it as a teenager quite a bit. Um, and it, as a young adult, but you can be having quote mystical experiences that are disconnecting you from yourself, right? You're ending up in black voids. You're ending up in fragmented places where you were, you were talking about yelling spirits and stuff. Um, I never really knew how to house some of the experiences that had happened. And I can't say mine have ever been vivid like yours like that, but it was in 2020 when I listened to um, Ganesha's son, who's a Kalsa high. He also was born and raised in Kundalini yoga. He talked about how the way he, he worked on recovery is he had to reconnect his will back to his body and how so much of the practice was actually disconnecting us from our own will and sending us to the astral realm. And I found the whole thing so interesting because in mystical or, or kind of spiritual studies around understanding different realms, the astral realm is a very dark place with a lot of disembodied souls. I can vouch for that, <laughs> for sure. And, and so I don't know a lot about this. I haven't gone down rabbit holes in these arenas. I've just kind of taken different shamanic experiences I've had in my CPTSD recovery. And one of them was a shaman saying, well, you're disembodied and nobody knows it because you've perfected the shine. And I found that so interesting because I was able to start tracking back my own Kundalini yoga practice and being like, wow, how can I be so shiny in the body, but actually so disconnected? And it reminded me of this thing of what you talked about, like, whoa, when we're overdeveloping, we can shoot out of our body. And that's exactly what a call Sahai was talking about was shooting that he was teaching us how to shoot out of our body into super consciousness, which is actually a, a, a perfected disassociated state. Mm, right. And I was like, I don't know if that's what happened. Call it what you want. You can have your experience and I can have mine. But I did. it did help me to start really understanding um, why I had uh, such, what I now know in CPTSD, such emotional flashbacks. Why I would have these really weird mind body disconnect situations. And the more I got actual real therapy, and I say real therapy, because I'm talking about a licensed therapist as opposed to, um, let's say somebody who calls themselves a yoga therapist doesn't mean that they're not a good practitioner, but they might not be coming at it through a mental health lens, right? Like you're talking about with your therapist or the Kundalini person who starts going down the, the Kundalini energy rabbit hole. For me, it helped me to land my experience out of the mystical spiritual language and start dealing with my physical brain body chemistry and the regular disassociation that I seem to live in regularly but I would have never seen myself as a perfected disassociated state where I feel like when I'm hearing you, Mel, you've been at this since you were 16. And so you've been naming these different things and finding your way of being able to come back to like what brings you home. Um, and I can see why 2020 would have been a relief because you've been doing all this on your own, trying to make sense of things for so long where there hasn't been any public truth telling. Um, there really wasn't. There was a little, but not a lot. Well, there were pockets of it, right? People that were speaking the truth in certain areas, but never as a totality in the full 3HO experience. No, no, not at all. 
Well, I want to thank you for bringing yourself here. It's really, again, an an interesting memory lane and a snapshot into um, a lot of people that many of us know and love and that are still very much um, uh, rooted in 3HO for for their own personal reasons and and are probably going through their own processes of of self-examination as well. Um, Show the photos. We, We were there. Yep. Yeah, I want to show the photos. So I wanted to move into that now. And okay. um, let's see. So Mel has some um, old photos. If you're listening to this on the podcast, I welcome you to join us over on the YouTube channel to, to look at the visuals that we um, get to see today. And I'm going to let Mel go ahead and explain what these are. Okay, so this is a photograph that was taken by Lisa Law in uh, 1968. So that was back when Yogi Bhajan first came to the United States. And there are some people in this photograph that I know that was this was taken in San Rafael, which is where the ashram was that I lived in. Um, these photos are so early that I actually don't even recognize some of the people that I know. But this fellow with the Afro in the front, um, uh, Solomon, um, he and his wife, Cherie, who's right behind him with the, um, yeah, with the dark hair, um, they lived in the room right next to mine in the ashram and they had a son um, and I used to babysit their son. Um, So I'm not going to tell you who the other people are because I don't, I can't really recognize them as I said, but this is an early photograph that was taken um, somewhere, not at the ashram because it didn't exist yet, but of the early group of people. Okay, 1968. Okay, so this is a photograph that originally I thought it was from an event called the Meeting of the Ways in San Francisco, but it turned out it was actually taken at an event called the Holy Man Jam that took place in Colorado. Um, And so on the left of the photo is Stephen Gaskin, who... um, was the teacher who created the place called The Farm in Tennessee, where many people went um, off to live with him and his wife. Um, So they had a spiritual community there. And then Yogi Bhajan, of course, is in the middle. And then um, Swami Satchidananda is over on the right. I don't know any of the other people in the photo. Okay, so this was taken apparently at the ashram in San Francisco of Dr. Mishra. Dr. Mishra is sitting below the blackboard. Um, I don't know the fellow, um, well, I guess it would be to his left, but in the photo on the right, then um, Yogi Bhajan sitting next to um, Mishra and then um, the fellow who we call Baba Bert, now Satsantok Singh. That's Satsantok Singh. Wow. Yeah. And then his wife, Robin, um, sitting next to him. Wow. That's some early photos. Do you know who this person is down in the left corner? I don't. No, I don't. I don't know who that is. Fascinating. Yeah. Okay. Okay, so this is a photo that was taken of me in my room in the ashram. And um, as I mentioned before, Jeannie and I lived in the sunroom at the end of the hall. Um, And uh, a few things about this photo. Um, 
Well, you notice the, the mala beads that are hanging on the window. Um, there's an image of um, one of the Egyptian goddesses. I'm not sure. Like Isis who, or Sekhmet? Mm -hmm. Isis. Um, that uh, uh, actually a teacher at my school had made for me. It's like a, a little batik. And then um, the dress that I'm wearing is actually a dress that I made. Um, and that was one of the things that I used to enjoy doing when I was there, along with um, some other forms of art. So that that art has pretty much been with me all my life. Wow. Okay, so this is actually the photo that we showed before, yeah. except that it has the names on them. Yep, so it says Lisa Law took the photo far left. We're going to read these. And okay. uh, anybody who's listening, if you know who these people are in reference to 3HO today, you're welcome to put them in the comments. So far left, Rufin Cooper. And in a row next to him is top to bottom, Tom Law and Paul Ehrlich. And you had talked about him being one of your early teachers. Right. Face partially shown, partially hidden, Richie Moonchild. Steve Samuels, Reno Meyerson at the bottom, far right next to Yogi Bhajan, is Larry Wentick, aka Larry Singh. So I wonder if that's the Larry that was out in the East Coast, or maybe a totally different one. Next to Joni Moonchild, furthest right. And Solomon... Let's see. So Solomon um, is down in the front. Um, Solomon the second from the right in bottom row and Sherry Solomon's partner is just below Larry. Recent respondent from New York reports that person's name far right bottom is Steve. All right, folks. Well, if anyone's watching and knows who these folks are, you're welcome to fill it in. I mean, the thing that stands out for me, I guess, is just how silly everybody's being. <laughs> um, or not everybody, but a certain number of people. <laughs> yeah. All right. So here's this picture of Yogi Bhajan and Ram Das. So I have no idea where this was taken, but honestly, um, it was very intriguing to me because obviously it was way back in the beginning when um, Yogi Bhajan wasn't wearing his turban all the time. Um, and he was friends basically with Ramdas. And I don't think that that was the case necessarily going forward. I think it was the case at the time this photo was taken, but later Ramdas kind of separated himself from Yogi Bhajan. We saw that one. Yeah, and then this one is the other photo that we saw was a cropped version of this. And I guess the interesting thing to me that I noticed was um, it says that uh, Tom Law is over on the left um, next to um, Stephen Gaskin. And I'm wondering if Tom Law and Lisa Law were married um, I don't remember anything about Tom Law, but apparently he was some kind of a spiritual teacher as well. Interesting. Yeah. 
Because Lisa Law was a photographer who did a lot of portraits of celebrities, for example, um, along with um, these. And it seems to me that she probably is connected to it through her husband, but I don't know for sure. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, and I just want people to really see, I mean, this is a part of the nostalgia that brought so many of our parents in at this time was the universality of it, right? It was being brought as if, you know, all the teachings from all the different faiths are all located and housed here. And so, you know, there weren't kind of the, you have to wear a turban, you have to do this, you have to do this. It was at first, it was kind of everyone's welcome. And there were a lot of people, as you're, you're explaining, Mel, that went and did their own thing as things, quote, got more solidified and YB was trying to make, make people convert to a certain way to do it. Some people were just like, nah, I'm out of here that's not, that part's not for me. And as you said, they went and started the farm or in, um, you know, in, in different communities, the people that were the early leaders might've just moved on with their own practices. And then YB kind of put new leaders into position that were following the protocol, wearing the turban, vying for the Mukia Singh Saib titles, all these things started coming in around this time that that Mel is really giving us a snapshot in. And I think these pictures give us a picture into that. Not everybody's wearing turbans yet. Some of those early solstices, they weren't. Those things, it was after that 1970, 71, where, where these things got a little bit more solidified. Well, and also the, the key kind of word that jumps out at me is man, the holy man jam. I mean, are there any women here? No. The holy man jam. <laughs> Uh, I mean, the meeting of the ways was the same way. I don't remember one single female spiritual teacher. Fascinating, because it was right in the midst of the white woman liberation movement and everything. Oh, yeah. And, you know, that actually reminds me, I, I had to look it up because I couldn't remember the name of it. But do you remember the Grace of God? Movement? Yes. And there was the whole Grace of God movement that was starting to happen around this time, right? It was. And I actually remember going with the Yogi Bhajan and a group of people from the ashram, or even some people who weren't in the ashram, um, to Broadway in San Francisco, where they have all the strict clubs, and like doing a march about the grace of God. <laughs> You're kidding. Hold on. You're going to have to tell us more about this. That was just, that was really something. Um, and there was this one woman who somehow was connected with the ashram, but I can't remember how, who was actually a belly dancer and she was belly dancing at this event. Um, and we were all, you know, walking along, chanting, you know, the grace of God or something like trying to save these uh, people who were, who were stripping. You're was, kidding. Hold on. I need you to explain to listeners what the grace of God movement is real quick. Well, that's a good question because I really don't remember the details exactly, but it was just something about how, you know, women, whether they did sadhana or not, they were going to be saved by, you know, bringing in the next avatar or something. Um, and um, that, you know, just women had these special powers just uh, by virtue of being a woman. But, you know, of course, they had to behave certain ways. And part of that was being, you know, graceful and obedient and, you know, all those kinds of things. Um, oh, and, you know, this is this is personal, but I do remember him saying, and I've heard this from other people, too, that like if you leave 3HO, you're going to end up um, 
being a drug addict and prostitute. Um, and um, I don't remember him specifically saying that to me or anything like that, but that kind of happened to me a bit in my in my twenties. And it's a part of my life that um, it's it's been really hard for me to integrate. Like mm. I couldn't even really admit to myself what I was doing. Um, like I, I got into, uh, I went to massage school and became a massage therapist. And I ended up with a boyfriend who was talking me into, you know, doing a little more than a massage. And, and it was like, all of a sudden here I was. And uh, we were at the time um, freebasing cocaine. You know, I mean, it's just a really crazy time in my life. And basically after that time, when I turned 30, I had stopped um, doing doing the drugs. I'd stopped smoking cigarettes and I just had like a complete and total nervous breakdown and sort of admitted to myself like what had been really happening. And also found out that it's not uncommon for women who've been, um, or for men for that matter, who've been sexually abused to end up kind of exploiting themselves in a way. Um, and then when I traced it back to Yogi Bhajan and some of the things he would say, like, if you're raped, it's be, it's basically because it can't happen unless you invite it, basically. Yeah. And since it had happened to me, you know, like over and over and over again as a teenager, and then once when I was um, in Mexico studying art, I was raped um, by, yeah. by a stranger who with a gun, you know, and it's like, well, this is happening to me because... I invited it, um, mm. not consciously, but that was sort of the programming yes. that I had. Yes, and trying to um, you know undo all of that and come to more of a place of wholeness and acceptance. Like, well, yeah, that happened, and there were a lot of reasons for that happening. It didn't just happen out of nowhere, or it didn't just happen because this you know all-powerful guru or whatever. Um, knew everything because he didn't he definitely didn't and he was also prostituting our children and he was prostituting our parents and he was prostituting our young women um, and grooming them and he was prostituting adult women um, with spiritual abuse and sexual abuse and i find it so ironic that he implanted such deep level convolution and sexual um spiritual predatory prostituting um, on our psyches as imprints only for him to be doing that to our women while in plain sight. Yes. It's Enough, amazing. It, it, it's so, it's so crazy. It's so crazy. It's really crazy. Meaning you even brought it up him and Premka are staying in this one room and you see it as one thing, but is everybody not paying attention? You know, same thing. He stayed in our house and him and whoever stayed in one room. And, you know, my dad would refer to them as the entourage. He assumed he was sleeping with all those women. And my dad just made it okay in his own psyche. Um, but the level of power dynamic and abuse that goes with the slut shaming, the prostituting, because prostituting isn't just trading sex for money. It's being emotionally used and abused it's not just a sexual act, like so much of the historical, what it means to prostitute somebody out. It means that you're psychologically binding them to need you and to then perform things on your behalf. 
And some of those performance could be sexual acts, but oftentimes they can be lots of other acts. Um, anyway, I wanted to qualify that because I really heard your own story and how painful that is to be like, whoa, that actually came true. The thing he said, and then being able to reflect on segments of your own life, whether it's you or whether it's a listener listening, I want us all to hold ourselves gently here because this is a part of the convoluted abuse that YB spun as a part of these teachings. Going back to the rape is always invited. It's very hard to extract your own healing from these experiences when you have that embedded in your psyche like that. Like somehow I must have called this on myself. Yeah. And I mean, it's still present at times. I think, well, why is this happening? Uh, and there's all these people out there, of course, saying that things happen because you make them happen. Things happen because you use certain language. And he used that a lot, that whole thing about the word and the word being powerful and um, yeah. how to create your own reality and all that kind of stuff, including <laughs> all this stuff. It's like, how in the world will I even be able to think that up in the first place? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I really appreciate your uh, vulnerability and the confusion of it, how it still shows up. I, I feel like CPTSD is like that, right? It can just bubble up and be like, woof, woof. It's it, kind it of taking me over. Just, <laughs> my dog wants to say hello. Hello. Yeah. We don't want to leave you out. Yeah. Hello. Thank you for, for visiting us. <laughs> well, I want to just touch on what you had mentioned about the grace of God movement, the fact that it was happening as early as you were talking about. Um, I know that Kamala talks about um, up in San Francisco in that San Rafael area, how when she started extracting herself, um, all that grace of God, there was a whole booklet that was passed out in the early seventies around the role, like the role of the woman and just how twisted and manipulated it became because here you are talking about doing a grace of God chanting down the strip as if you all represent what womanhood can be, right? And now let's go pray on all the prostitutes on Sunset Strip in LA. Um, meanwhile, he's again, sexually abusing some of those very women by this time. And then we know that continues to go on for 20 plus 30, 40, 50 years in the name of spirituality, which only makes it more twisted, at least in prostitution, it, it, you get what you paid for, right? It's like, hey, baby, this is what you get. And this is how much it costs. And at least it's upfront where what YB was doing is he was buying our women, offering money, offering, I'll take care of you. He was sugar daddying himself out to our kids. Meanwhile, keeping our parents in perpetual poverty, both emotional and spiritual poverty, um, and then exploiting us that if we leave, we're going to end up being prostitutes. The fact that this was actually a movement called the grace of God, and we can find those booklets. Any of you listening that have references to that, I know Kamala will. There are whole booklets that she talks about. And when you read this, this stuff is so misogynistic. It's just sick. It's, it's misogynistic with whitewashing spirituality wrapped around it. Um, yeah, it's bad news brown. And so if you wonder, and I know this has been my process, if you wonder where some of these like weird subconscious teachings come from, 
And then you read some of these things or you read some of these lecture quotes, you suddenly realize, holy moly, that's been running my inner, my inner record. And I had no idea. That's what's real. That's the trickery. So I think that grace of God movement really represents some of the, the sickest trickery that's wrapped up in the teachings. This whole idea that women were 10 times stronger, women had all this grace, women had all this power. And so because men are so pathetic and women are so powerful women, you need to serve the men. Yeah. And it didn't give women really many alternatives in terms of being independent financially either. <laughs> so. Yeah. Well said. And so, so much not- more. Yeah. Yeah. yeah do it or men do it or whoever does it for the money but the truth is that part of that is because there aren't other options so well said so well said and it's a part of what um cult abuse really does to us is we don't really understand how much our lives get so entrenched that you don't have other options um whether you don't have physical financial options or just in your own psychology your entire family, your entire lifestyle, your entire livelihood, everything has been wrapped around the devotion and dedication to this community. It can be very, very hard to say, who am I if all this ends up not being true? It's hard stuff. Where you started seeing that at 16 and started pulling yourself out. But I also know it wasn't an easy road from there. It sounds like you had to go through so much to be able to land where you are today. Oh, absolutely. It's been a very long journey. My my wife can definitely vouch for that because she's been with me throughout. And um, at the, it, it, you know, sometimes when I think about my life and all the different things, all the different stages, it feels kind of <laughs> unbelievable. Surreal. Um, yeah, it feels very surreal. It's like, I mean, I don't need to watch a movie. I can just remember my life. <laughs> Well, I'm happy to hear that you are um, integrating and, and getting the support you need in your own CPTS journey, but also as an artist, I, you know, I'm discovering there's so many aspects of my own creativity that were stunted and never um, offered attention or the breath of life because I was busy being a wonderful child yogi. Um, and I just want to honor you for that. I don't, again, I don't know all of the twists and turns of your journey, Um but it sounds like you've been pulling yourself out um, from dark places and bootstrapping most of your life. And it, it makes me happy that you've had a, a loving partnership to support you along the way as well. I wish for that for all of us and, and for me and for many more that I know um, it's not so easy to find. Right. Yeah. So surviving this particular cult experience, whether it was for a short time or for a long time, is just a major endeavor it is and when we're child survivors of sexual abuse and especially sexual abuse from our own family members it's added convolution and um this has nothing to do with mel's story but i do want to put it out there as a survivor um i have taken the approach that when i attract convolution in my life it's not because i am thinking convoluted it's not because i myself am convoluted but because i have gone through very convoluted experiences that have wrapped themselves around me and so when i recognize convolution i start allowing me to be able to pull these things that never were a part of my soul i just ended up in these convolution and, and then it becomes a part of what i thought was me And so as I draw on these things, I'm able to remove myself slowly. That's how I integrate is realizing, well, I might've come from convolution, but I'm not that, you know, I'm whole. 
I'm enough, you know, and, and that, that's helped me be able to just keep going back to, wow, I came from real convolution and any one of us that come from sexual abuse in our family, that's some fucked up shit because you learn love and abuse in the same place. And so to extract ourselves from that level of twistedness is not easy. I can't encourage all the realms of support from traditional to, to not traditional, as long as you're doing it for you, as long as you're listening to what works for your body. And let's listen to Mel's story here is because she was always listening to what was right for her. And I honor you for that. Even at 16, you were able to be like, ah, uh, no, ah, uh, no and guide yourself. Even if it guided you into more bad experiences, you still kept at it and keep pulling yourself. And I think that's all we can really ever do on our, on our trauma healing recovery process. So thank you. Thank you for showing up and sharing. Yeah. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. um, Before we wrap up any last words and tell us why you chose the song you chose. Oh, okay. Um, Well, I, went to Hawaii for the very first time um, when I first met my wife. And um, we were listening to this song by Savage Garden. Um, and it's from the album, Truly Madly Deeply. And it's kind of like if we ever, um, well, we, did, we didn't do this <laughs> wedding, but um, if we ever had a wedding song, this would be it. Truly Madly Deeply by Savage garden let's go ahead and listen here and as always folks we don't listen to the whole song because of copyright but you can listen to the uncomfortable conversations playlist and get the whole thing and here we go Well, that was nourishing. Yeah. Thank you. I fell in love with that song when I heard it for the first time. I can definitely see why, especially when you're in a new relationship and you're in Hawaii. Right. <laughs> um, Mel, thank you so much. Thank you for bringing your voice and your memories and, uh, and your healing journey um, and your pictures to the Uncomfortable Conversations playlist um, and also just to this podcast conversation. We really appreciate you. I appreciate you very much as well. Thank you so much for doing this. Absolutely. All right, folks. Well, that wraps up another episode of the Uncomfortable Conversations podcast, the untold stories of the 3HO Kundalini Yoga community. If you'd like to contribute to this broadcast, you can make a one-time or monthly donation. Just see the link in the show notes or check out my website at gurunishan.com. 
Also, if you'd like to be a guest on the podcast, uh, please send an email to me at gn.gurunishan.com and you can subscribe and follow my work at my website as well. Um, if you don't know, I recently launched a new podcast called Uncomfortable Conversations on Predators in Business, Community, and Culture. Um, if you've been listening to this podcast for the last three years, you know that it's helped me go into all sorts of rabbit holes around my own false identity and um, helped me really realize that this conversation is not unique to 3HO. This type of predatory abuse, these type of um, tactics of coercion are not unique to our special teachings, um, but rather they are formulas that are used all across the world have their roots in colonialism and imperialism. And so that platform of uncomfortable conversations uh, on predators in business, community, and culture um, offers uh, larger context conversations outside of the 3HO story. But still, we all have plenty of stories to tell. So I invite you to also reach out to me if you want to share other dynamic interesting segments of your life in which you woke up to predatory patterns in business, community, and culture. Because one thing I've learned is that we can't make the culprit the thing we joined. There's always going to be another thing that you join. There's always going to be another predatory teacher or predatory healer or predatory doctor or predatory government agency. You fill in the blank. And so the more we can see this as cult dynamics and coercion control dynamics, the more we can become discerning and self-empowering so that we don't just repeat trauma bonding and repeat these patterns over and over again, but rather see them for what they are, call them what they are, name them in real time, which I'm a testimony to say that's not easy shit to do. We do it slowly. We do it one baby step at a time and recovery is real. It's an everyday real life experience. CPTSD doesn't go away, but we do get better and better at recognizing what spins us out and how to bring us back home to ourselves. I thank you all for listening. I thank you for your support. And um, I'll talk to you on the next episode.